This is verse 1 of the second chapter of the book of Psalms. Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now turn over to Acts, chapter 12, verse 20. With this as our backdrop, let's see what takes place. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes He took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, the angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they'd completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is God's word. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity gathered again in your house to look into your word, to try to understand it, and to ask you for the strength to obey it. Lord, open these things to us so that we may please you in all we say and do. Lord, we ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we studied that transitional passage where Luke is giving us some details that will help us make sense of things as they unfold. And then last week, we were fed well, uh, learning how even though Herod had uh, reached his hand out in violence to vex the church, God is still totally in control and miraculously releases Peter from prison while a group of people is praying for his release. This week, though, the chapter concludes with this somewhat of a bizarre story and a very gruesome end to this man who had reached out his hand to vex the church. Uh, This is one of those passages where uh, young boys who are bored playing on a phone or taking, you know, not notes, but drawing on something go, what? Eating of worms? Mom, let's Google that when we get home. 
I would suggest that you don't, as I was warned not to, but did anyway. It's bad. Before modern medicine, this was real, and it was a gruesome end. And in prophetic fulfillment of the warning in Psalm 2, you don't take God's place. You don't rob him of his glory. What we're reading here is about a thief, maybe not a, a, a thief of a large sum of money. And usually the, the, the bigger the thievery, the, the more notable the crime, right? Uh, no one goes to jail for stealing paper clips, although that would be a, a, a sin if it's theft. But you would say that the worst of thievery is the greatest of assets or resources, correct? What if you're stealing glory that actually is the Lord's? And no one is worthy of it except for him because he's God and he made everything. That's a big deal. And we see that it meets with a horrible end. Where we left off from last week, Peter had been delivered from prison and death. But this tyrant Herod Agrippa is still at large, continuing to persecute the church. And where we pick up this morning, after his going down to Caesarea, that was the last verse of last week went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent some time there. That's where Luke tells us he meets his death. And for the next six verses, he gives us those circumstances. If you look back at 20, Herod was very angry. The people of Tyre and Sidon, they came with one accord, having persuaded this man named Blastus. They asked for peace because they depended on the king's country, This is Herod ruling over Judea, Palestine, that is. And they need to trade. They depend on this food. Most of the attention of this passage is fixed on Herod. We know him as Agrippa I. It's always good to know who you're dealing with. Mark told us about that last week as far as which James was the James that which Herod had killed. Well, just to review, um, this was a nephew of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the one that removed the head of John the baptizer and delivered it to a party on a platter. You remember that story. Had to do with uh, a girl dancing. Herod Antipas being impressed offers this grandiose uh, promise. You can have whatever you want. This girl confers with her mother and request the head of John the Baptist. Now he does it in public, so rather than to shame himself and to save face, he delivers on the request. And John is killed. Well, not only this Herod, but there's another. There's Herod the Great. This Herod Agrippa is a grandson of Herod the Great who was the murderer of all the little baby boys two years and younger at the time of uh, our Lord's birth. So this man comes with uh, quite an infamous pedigree. Herod Agrippa lived in Rome for 30 years, was a man of Roman habits, grew up with the emperor's son, was clearly introduced to all the vices known to power and privilege that we heard about with the song's introduction. But if we know anything about the history of Rome, we know that those vices were, were dark. So it's strange when we read from extra-biblical sources that this man had Jewish interests as well, as if to try to act as though his 
interests were in line with the interests of the people under his rule, he kept the sacrificial system meticulously. Even some of the purity rituals to keep himself clean to where he could go to places, do things that he wouldn't otherwise be able to do, perhaps. But first of all, he's a politician. And as a politician, who of utmost importance is to retain one's footing, to retain one's position, he found it necessary to keep the Jews happy. And when we say the Jews, and when this is said Jews when Luke is writing, it usually refers to almost inevitably the ruling class that were responsible for Jesus' death. So if they got rid of Jesus, they're also looking to get rid of his followers and especially the leadership of that following, known as the Christians by this point. So when he lays violent hands on the church to vex the church, he's doing this for political posturing. Last week, we read about the killing of James with the sword, which was a formal execution. That was John's brother. And if you remember, it was James and John who asked Jesus if they could sit on his left hand and his right when, he, when his kingdom arrives in his glory. And Jesus basically says, you don't know what you're asking for, and that's not my choice anyway. Mine to give, that, that, that's determined for uh, whom it's for. But not without asking them, are, are you able to drink the cup I have to drink of? be baptized, baptism I'm to be baptized with. They didn't know what that meant. But by the time we read this, James knows. He's been executed. His life for the cause of the gospel. And then what about John? Remember Peter asked about John after Peter was told that he was going to suffer for the sake of Christ. And basically Jesus says, you follow me. That's none of your business. John's the one who's going to outlive them all. And James is the first to go. And last week we learned of the mystery of the questions left behind in passages like this. And what do we do with them? We'll come back to that before we conclude. But the situation Luke describes here in this last of paragraphs in chapter 12 is not entirely clear. We're not given the specifics as to what the disagreement between Caesarea and the port cities of uh, Tyre and Sidon. They're mentioned by Jesus, geographical locations. It was north of them. They had seaports as well. They'd been trading back and forth all the way back to the days of Hiram and Solomon. Remember, they'd trade cedars and all kinds of things. Long-lasting relationship, but it looks as if it's in jeopardy because Herod's mad about something we we know not of whatever it is. Specifically, though, Luke moves on to paint the picture of what happens in the process of Herod Agrippa working out whatever this disagreement is. Uh, A little bit of background that might help us paint the picture more colorfully. Uh, Caesarea had an exceptional harbor I don't know if you came to church to hear about an exceptional harbor in Caesarea. If you have been to Caesarea, you may have visited there. Problem with the harbor there until Herod the Great was that the the water flowed from south to north, 
And that was, that was the current, and it would, it would fill it up with sand. They'd dredge it out to try to make it useful, but it'd fill up again. It's just the way that the land laid. Until Herod the Great, being the architectural and uh, engineering wonder such as he was, had his men figure out a way to develop hydraulic cement. So they built walls underwater. And when they were done, the current actually flowed in an opposite direction and dredged it out automatically. And it became the de facto trading capital of Palestine. Very lucrative to be in charge of that harbor and that port. Well, when you're the big dog, you can squeeze the smaller dogs. And that's what's going on here. And it's the food supply, namely grain from Galilee, where you can grow it, is needed by the people on the coast who can't grow it there. And this is where you might have heard the saying, it's said in different ways, but when trade flows freely across the borders, you've got peace and everyone's happy. When trade stops flowing freely over the borders, then soldiers move across those borders. Trade's a good thing. In this case, it's being threatened. So the northern cities, heavily dependent on Galilee for their food supply, are in a panic. And uh, whatever the case for what they were mad about, Herod's angry. So they send a delegation to ask for peace. And their foot in the door, if we read it here, is the good graces of this fellow named Blastus. How many of you ever met a Blastus? I've never met one. Anybody? Now, if you grow up in a church, usually you know a lot of people with Bible names, don't you? We've got a a Michael and a Benjamin and a David in our house. Isaac, my brother Jacob. Um, My brother-in-law's named Jason. That's a Greek biblical name, but I've never met a Blastus. But don't you think it'd be cool to grow up with that name? I mean, first day, P.E., elementary school, they're picking kickball. Who are you going to pick first? Blastus? (laughs) Blastus? <laughs> I mean, good grief. Why not? He's going to kick it a quarter mile. Blastus. Whether or not this guy was what you'd expect with a name like that, we have no idea. And his title really isn't impressive. He's a chamberlain. What does a chamberlain do? Takes care of the living quarters of the king. Now, whether or not this was because... He was from Tyre or Sidon, or he takes a bribe like anyone else. This is who they use. So that's their foot in the door. And again, whatever the details, really we don't, we don't know. By the time you get to verse 21, we skip over all that. And there's this appointed day. Herod puts on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, delivered an oration. That's a big speech. Now, some say that this is on uh, behalf of recognizing the emperor, and they're using these political disputes in here as well. It could be a separate meeting. They could be combined. We don't really know. But what we do know, and this is backed up by extra-biblical historians. We're going to talk about Josephus here in a minute. Uh, The people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. They're impressed. What is being said and what they're seeing with their eyes stirs them up into some type of frenzy, and they credit this man, as some good Romans would, with some form of deity. And he takes it, and that's the result of his end. Specifically, Luke sees this as part of God's activity on behalf of the Jerusalem church to protect it. 
Now, as far as Luke and Josephus, Josephus was a Jewish historian. He's paid for by Rome. Sometimes you can hear his loyalties to Rome, but no one questions his, his historicity. It, it's good stuff. We use it a lot. As far as an extra biblical witness, the, the details are the same. The greater outline is, is very close. But the royal robes that Luke speaks of here is described in greater detail, if you listen to Josephus. He says they are made wholly of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful, which shone so brightly in the morning sun that the people hailed him as a god. So evidently they were able to string thread out of silver and make this reflective outfit such that when the sun came up on the crowd that morning, this man is reflecting the sunlight back into the faces of the crowd. I think it'd be great to look at this with modern eyes. We'd probably say, what is this, Halloween and he's an astronaut? Uh, that's weird. But to them, he's godlike. Um, He's praised as a god. Both writers agree, Luke and Josephus, which is interesting, that they condemn his acceptance as blasphemous adulation and agree, therefore, that God's judgment fell on him because he glorified himself instead of God. Now, Luke is inspired. Josephus is not. But the accounts are the same. Now, Luke says he was eaten of worms. Again, that, that's gross. Josephus says that a severe pain rose in his belly, which became so violent that he was carried to his palace, where five days later he died. Now, it appears that it was much quicker than that, but Luke's account is much more concise. It doesn't necessarily mean that he died there on the spot. What's interesting, though, again from historical records is that Antiochus Epiphanes died pretty much the same way. He's the one that, that, that slaughtered the pig in the temple and defiled the place, the, the, the abomination of, of desolation, who in his arrogance had thought to grasp the stars of heaven but was seized with an incurable pain in his bowels and with excruciating interner, internal torture, he died. You've watched that stupid stuff on YouTube called Instant Karma, I'm sure, some of you. There's a whole string of goofy things that people do in an attempt to do something to someone else, but it immediately comes back on their head like you try to trip somebody and you get tripped instead. That's called Instant Karma. I won't believe in karma, but it makes for good YouTube clicks. This isn't Instant Karma. This is Instant Compost. People pay good money for worms to eat their, their leftovers in order to put that in their, you know, uh, what do they call that, concentrated gardening, raised bed type, type stuff. That's what happened. They got composted. Some of this, I think, is meant to be ironic, maybe even humorous. Same as with Peter knocking on the door. They won't let him in. These are the details within the scripture that just make you go, you couldn't make this stuff up. It's just, it wouldn't be the way we would do it. So last week we dealt with the hard questions. We were fed well last week. Why did God allow James to be killed but break Peter out of jail? The answer is we simply aren't told. 
And it, we, we don't have to, to just stick with the scripture here. You folks know people within this very ministry who are useful to the kingdom, who are helpful in their teaching. God took them home early and, and not without suffering. It was the same in the ministry I grew up in. It's at that point that you want to say, God, what are you doing? This is the way we expect for this to happen. We need them. Who's going to take their place? Why is one door open and another door shut? We, we would think that would be reversed. But I, 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 I thought it, it worth mentioning again before we, we get to the conclusion here. If God could deliver Peter, don't you think he could have delivered James? I mean, if he can do one, he can do the other. That's where we should find some comfort. Because there's no comfort in the idea that God is limited and that every now and then the devil gets through the hedge and bad people get by with bad things and you just write it off. No, there's no such thing as one maverick molecule in this universe of his. Psalm 2 stands. There's a reckoning on both sides. And if there are blessings on this side that seem as though they were due, they're stored up. And if there's punishment here that seems not to have transpired, oh, it's coming. It's not a comfort in the midst of it, perhaps, but, but just to think. If something comes to you and your family or myself and my family and gets past God Almighty, gets past the Son and gets past the Spirit who indwells us, don't believe anything other than whatever comes your way comes with great purpose. It's on purpose. It's by God's decree. None of us make sense of this life in the middle of living it. We've got to wait on that when we can look at it from God's perspective and glory. And it'll all make sense then. But we have to credit him with, with some patience in the mystery of it all. And this passage is full of mystery. And let's not miss the artistry with which Luke describes the complete reversal of the church's situation in chapter 12. Most of chapter 12 was dealt with last week, and the basis of it all is God's gospel will not be stopped, not by Herod, not by anybody else. As it goes out, God brings his people in as he saves them. His word will accomplish that for which it was purposed. Not going to stop it. But the way the thing began, you've got Herod on a rampage, arresting, persecuting, executing church leaders. At the end of just the chapter, he's struck down dead James is dead. Peter is in prison. Herod is victorious at the beginning. But at the end, Herod is dead. Peter is free. And the word of God is victorious. That's Psalm 2. It's going to happen. You can count on it. Might not be according to your timetable. And it might not be without sorrow. But the Lord will not be mocked. So what's in this for me? That's the way we conclude some of these studies. All of them are different. Sometimes they neatly arrange around three points, maybe a poem, or we sing those poems at, at the end, perhaps. Sometimes they're pointless. They don't have points. It's just one major thing you're supposed to look at and view the world differently from that point on. Uh, this one seems to work 
well with this arrangement. And I don't always mention this caveat, but when I say what's in this for me, what we're not saying is what does this mean to me? The scriptures mean what they mean regardless of who's reading them or understanding them or obeying them. When God wrote this, it, it meant something when he wrote it through whomever he inspired to say it. Each passage has its meaning. And that's why we spend most of our time in this room during this part of the service trying to figure out what it means. But once we've figured out what it means, then we're, we're compelled to obey it. We wouldn't sit around in a room and, and take turns. Okay, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? And then we'll all vote on which one of our interpretations we like the best. It's not what God... This isn't... I said poetry a minute ago, but that confused the tar out of me in school because the teacher would say, okay, what do you think this means? And 10 people would say 10 different things and she'd say, that's right. <laughs> and say, that can't be right. The poet meant it to mean something. What does he or she say that it means? So what we've got to do every time we open God's word is figure out what God means by it and then we can apply it. What are we supposed to do? Does this change the way we are acting or should act? Maybe it's not an application as much as an implication. Again, the way you look at the world based on what Jesus has told you is true. A lot could be said about this. We could talk about the mystery of the way God holds the cards and doesn't tell us. It's for him to know and us to find out. We could talk about the warning from Psalm 2. But one way that I, 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 I saw and I thought this is... This is this is helpful, it's simple. There are three parties said to be at work in this passage in the economy of God. We won't worry about Blastus. We won't worry about Herod. He's eat up with worms. Uh, we won't worry about Tyre or Sidon. But if you go all the way back to the beginning, you've got a sovereign God. He's kind of in the background uh, in this chapter. And then... By his direction, you have ministering angels. The ministering angels are either opening doors automatically to release prisoners from jail or doubling over heads of state as their intestines are riddled with worms. Angel of the Lord, it says, responsible for both. And then you have a group of praying people. Since we don't have anything to do with the first or the second, we're not sovereign God and the only way we know what the angels are doing is when we're supernaturally given insight as to what they're doing. But if any of the players in here fits with where we are today, I think it's the, the church. And the role that they play is, is prayer. It, it, it's not glamorous. It, it's not as interesting as a reflective suit. Uh, it's not going to get any praise or adulation from the public as, as being supernatural it it's just talking to the one who saved us gave us the gospel and returned to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the father making intercession for us at this very moment if you just consider how this plays out and that element and how it's involved you've got Herod Agrippa I like the way G Campbell Morgan referred to him as the pervert of Rome with Hebrew aspirations. But in his fashion, smarter, more practical than the other Herods, 
but has laid violent hands on some that belonged to the church and killed James with the sword. The church was afraid of Saul of Tarsus. They began leaving their homes. They're winding up in Antioch and in Cyprus and along the seaboard, the coastal lands, not far from Tyre and Sidon. It's open season on Christians. And now it's not just a crazy man known as Saul of Tarsus who's now a believer in preaching. It's Rome itself through Herod. What are they supposed to do? How do you defend against a madman? How do you counter such a force? How many would think a prayer meeting What do you put in array against the forces of, of, of the world's biggest superpower and its clown they have with his space suit and people saying he's a god? What do you do with that guy? You gather in a room and you pray like the woods are on fire. That's what they did. A prayer meeting. People with their eyes shut on their knees talking to someone they can't see. Many of them, though, spent three years with while he was on this earth. Again, this is stuff you don't make up. Marvel doesn't care about this stuff because it wouldn't sell films. Maybe Disney could try. They're not doing too well these days. I still don't think a prayer meeting against Darth Vader. But this is the way it worked. And what did that prayer look like? Please don't miss this. This is the best part. They're praying fervently, that's good. They're praying believing, that's good. All the while wondering how in the world God could do it, that's normal. And when the answer came, they were surprised and shocked. Why do I like that? Because it sounds familiar, doesn't it? You want to pray fervently. And of course, if you're praying at all, you're believing but you really don't know how you're going to get through what you're supposed to get through or you're going to get what you need. So it's kind of like some Hail Mary. And maybe, maybe you just do it so the, the kids hear you. But then when the prayer is answered, you're probably the first to be embarrassed because you know you really didn't think it was going to happen. Right? But it did. And then there's those times where you pray fervently and what you pray for doesn't happen. James is killed with a sword. But they're praying just the same. I don't read anything about, hey, it didn't work with James. Why are we worried about Peter? No, they're still praying. Nothing of eternal significance is accomplished apart from prayer, is what I've been told. So where do we go from here? How many of you would agree uh, the world has changed a bit the last few years? I'm 43. I don't say that to remind you. It's good to remind myself. I'm middle-aged now. I've joined the middle-aged force of America. Some have called me an old soul before. That just means I'm backward and weird probably, and it's a nice way to say you're backward and weird. doesn't mean I've spent any more than 43 birthdays on this planet but I don't feel like the world we live in is the world we lived in when I got my driver's license or registered to vote or when I was excited to vote. Um, 
or when my social security number, when I got my driver's license, was handed over to someone who put it in a computer so that if they need to, they can draft me. Or when I got married. Or when we were having children. I used to could keep up when I was at Liberty or Southeastern because when you're there in Bible school, you hear about these things such that when uh, a decision is made or there's a verdict or a case or a law is passed or a bill's in session or a resolution where it looks as if what we believe to be true in this book and what this country of ours says is our values begins to just drift further and further apart. I can't keep up with that stuff anymore. It's just way too much, and it happens too often. And with the 24-hour access electronically on any given device, you just don't even really know what to say, when, and how as to understand where we are or where we're going. I, I don't know if in my lifetime there will be churches who need to put together prayer meetings to pray their staff out of jail. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Should one of my sons decide to answer the call to ministry, what, what will a generation from now look like? I don't know. If there comes a time where some authority tells a person like myself what I can't and can't say in a room like this, what will we do? I don't know. But I know what resources we have. We have a sovereign God in heaven who has access to ministering angels and we can get on our faces and pray. And if he's glorified in getting rid of our enemy, praise his name. And if he's not, praise his name, we'll see him sooner. And if any of those people kill us, guess what? He'll raise us up because he paid for that on the cross. They can't hurt us. And Psalm 2 is never going to expire. <laughs> it just doesn't, doesn't work that way. So when we get to the end and we read verse 24, it should make all the sense in the world. But, which is in transition to everything we've read so far, the word of God increased and multiplied. It kept going. And we're glad it did because that's why we're here. It got to us. In Pukwai, the uttermost parts of the world. <laughs> and it's still going. Look at verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, and when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. That's John Mark. So at the end, make an assessment. Herod is dead. The word of God is living, and his witnesses are on the road again to their next adventure. We're going to see a pattern emerge at the end of the summer when we jump back in chapter 13 where Paul will ride into a town, start teaching, aggravate the residents, start a riot, get arrested, escape, go to the next town, rinse and repeat. And that's how the gospel spread. He'll start with the people who should know the truth and then he'll wind up with the people that know nothing and come to the truth more quickly than those who did. So don't forget Psalm 2. Rulers of this world have and will again assume the position of God. And God has and will again break them as easily and as irreparably as a piece of pottery. Because he will share his glory with no one. 
And don't forget, it's kind of a final word. God knows which doors to open and which doors to close. On our side, it's all mystery. That's another illustration buried in here that's kind of unique. Nobody opens prison doors. They're designed specifically to keep people from opening them, right? The only thing I can think of any closer would be a safe. You design it to make sure nobody gets in. Well, the prison's designed to make sure nobody gets out. Well, it opens automatically in this passage. Then you've got the door to your house. You should be able to get through your own door, right? Peter's knocking at his own door. You can't get in. The girl on the other side can easily open it, but for some reason he's left out in the cold and he's still knocking. It seems backward. I think that's part of the whole mystery. How much of our lives are spent wondering why this door won't open and this door will. I want this one to stay shut. I want this one to open. That's not the way it works. The Lord knows why. And there's one thing he's left you to help you get by while it doesn't make sense. And that's prayer. He's probably not going to send you the angel to kick down the one door and open the other. He might. He could. Probably won't. You got something better than, than, than that. You got this to tell you how the story ends. So we pray. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights, I usually say the same thing when we transition from our 35, 40 minutes worth of Bible study to about 15, 20 minutes worth of prayer before choir rehearsal afterward. And that is when we split up at our tables to pray with one another, I say something to the tune of this is the most important thing we do aside from sitting under the sound of God's word is praying together. And I hope you'll come see what we do if you've never been on a Wednesday. That's what it is. We study the Bible a little less formal as we do in here. And then we pray. We got a list, needs within the church. We pray together. And I know because I'm human, because I have the same fears and anxieties and worries as any of the rest of you. But that's probably one of the reasons why some might choose not to come on a Wednesday. Because at some point it might be expected of you to pray in front of other people you might not know. And it is nerve-wracking. And you do wonder if what you're saying is thought of by the person next to you the same as the God to whom you're supposed to be speaking, right? Um, you want to clear out a church, put on the, bu- the billboard. Uh, extended month-long protracted services on prayer. Who wants to go to those? Because we all know we don't do it enough. And we all know that we don't want to be called on. I mean, if I just had a sign-up, who wants to come up, up, up here and pray? There'd be a few. What, what, if, what if it was like the draft? You know, you join the church, we get your name. And any Sunday, you don't know when... <laughs> Because if we tell you when, you go somewhere else. Right? Yes, there's stress involved. But folks, the payout, the investment, 
to sit in that room and listen to the sounds of other people addressing our Lord on behalf of each other. It's priceless. To be on a list where you know that people are lifting up your name in prayer. What's that worth? The, the side effects of it are, are crazy too. If you were to submit yourselves periodically to praying with other people that you are members in a church with, do you think it would be easier or less easy to have some stupid gripe with them? Now, that stuff goes out the window when you bow your heads and say, Father in heaven, right? If you can sit there during prayer time and be mad at the person across the table, then uh, hats off to you. You've got, you've got some <laughs> issues that the Lord needs to fix. So pray more. You need it. We might write you a prescription for it. Six years worth of Wednesday nights and every other Sunday public, right? I'm getting in the ditch here. Everything seems weird these days. Everything seems broken. Everything's expensive. Gas is crazy. You can't say how you feel without getting in trouble. What and where we go from here, I don't know, but I know what we do have. We have prayer with each other. That is a defense like none other. It's not a weapon of war. It's a weapon of defense until the Lord comes to get us. What we do on Wednesday nights, what I hope you do daily alone with your family, when you pray, that is your declaration of dependence on God. To say, Father in heaven says that he's your Father in heaven. And to say anything to him acknowledges that he's in charge and you're not, right? Prayer, like we see here, fervent, believing, but fickle, and far less hopeful of what God can actually do, but, but it's human, but it's prayer. That is the total polar opposite of Psalm 2, where they say we will declare our independence from this God. We'll burst the bands from us. We'll throw off the restraints. We'll figure this out for ourselves. We'll be our own God. What does the Father in heaven do with that? He laughs. And if need be, he breaks them. He said he would in the garden. If you sin, there's death. But then he climbed on a cross, paid for all those sins to give us a home in heaven. And until we get there, he gave us prayer. I would ask you, basis of this passage, to pray about prayer, that the Lord would give you whatever it takes to be more prayerful and to pray with your church. That's one of those crazy prayers I'm, I think the Lord is just bound to answer. I mean, if you ask the Lord to help me pray, is he going to say, I'm not feeling very charitable today. I, I really don't want to hear from you. <laughs> or to pray that you'd be more generous. Or that you'd pray to be more like him. Of course he's going to answer it. But will we be faithful to pray? Enough about talking of it. Let's do it. Father in heaven, thank you for a story in the 12th chapter of Acts about a group of people in a room. They've lost one of their 
their men and another's in jail. They expect to lose him in the morning, but they're praying. Lord, would you give us the guts, the resolve to be prayerful, to pray for each other, to pray for other churches, to pray down your glory, to pray down Psalm 2, that you would receive your glory. Lord, that you would preserve us. Lord, thank you that this church is a praying church. But because we're fallen and we're sinful, there's always room for improvement. We could pray more. We can pray better. We can pray more in line with your word, which you've promised to bless. Lord, would you so move on this church to make us even more so a church of prayer in an uncertain horizon, not knowing what to expect. Be glorified in the fulfillment of your word. And we ask this in your precious name. Amen.